Hi, and welcome to Uncommon Sense from the Sociological Review. I'm Alexis Utrong in Gatineau, Ottawa, Canada. And I'm Rosie Hancock in Sydney, Australia. And as ever, this is where we are joined by a friendly expert guest who helps us to see an everyday concept more critically and, yes, more sociologically. Visit our archive, which shows on everything from emotion to Europeans, nature to natives, and you'll see we're about questioning the taken for granted and seeing the world differently. Today, all the world's a stage. That one's from Shakespeare. The next one, we're all born naked and the rest is drag. That one's, that one's RuPaul. Yes, we are talking about performance. It's a theme that's been staring us in the face because really, what's a podcast if it isn't that? So today we're asking, what is performance exactly? Is it confined to the stage alone? Is it ephemeral or inevitable? A means of escape? An expression of something authentic or fake, sincere or cynical, as Irvin Goffman would have it, a kind of work, or perhaps none of those. It's something thinkers in and around the social sciences have had a lot to say about, from Bakhtin on the carnival and the carnivalesque to Goffman with his fascination for our tiniest interactions, and Judith Butler, who reminded us of the performative aspect of gender. Our guest today is Kareem Kudshamdani, an Associate Professor of Theatre, Dance and Performance Studies at Tufts University and the author of Ishtail, Accenting Gay Indian Nightlife. Focused on Bangalore and Chicago, Kareem's book explores how queer South Asian men, typically migrants and transnational workers, bring their own cultural practices, their own accent to nightlife cultures through performance. Hi, Kareem. Hello. Thank you for having me. Hi, Karim. We should add also, of course, that you also perform uh, and have done research as La Horvajistan, right? Who you describe as everyone's favorite overeducated uh, Desi drag auntie. I'm interested in hearing more about this because, and I know, I, I'm actually not sure if I've shared this uh, yet, but I performed in Joso, like, so, uh, which could be loosely defined as cross dressing. Uh, well, yeah, female cross-dressing uh, in Japan as part of my two-year fieldwork in Tokyo on costume play, which is like where people dress up as basically like manga wow. and anime characters, right? So I do have, I saw your your some of your music videos. So I have a, qu- a few questions for you about, not just about methods, but also about singing and, and makeup. And we'll come back to uh, Lahore in a moment and talk more about drag towards the end of the show. Yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> but Kree, we wanted to start by asking you about your own story pre-academia and okay. whether it drew you to be interested in performance. Because I know you were born in Gibraltar, you were raised in Ghana and now live in the US and your family is originally from what's now Pakistan. That's yes. right. did that Did that breadth of experience give you an early awareness that what we think is normal, say, what gender is, is in fact culturally constructed? You know, all of those things come to bear and continually come to bear for me as I do my research. So my most recent work is on aunties and I'm thinking about the role of collective queer trans femme labor around me that shaped who I am, that shaped my path into academia, etc. But At the time that I was living in Ghana, where I spent most of my childhood, I was a science student. I was uh, my, I did my A-levels in chemistry, math, and physics. And that was the path. I was going to be a nice chemical engineer. And it's actually a class in anthropology and sociology at Colgate University that our department was sort of compounded there um, with both disciplines that shook everything up for me. And that got me thinking about where I fit in the world, facts and science, the the factuality of science, but actually the reflexivity of the social sciences that gave me the tools to look at where I fit to think about race, class, migration. So so that's where it comes in, right? Uh, suddenly I'm thinking about what's the relationship between partition and Gibraltar and Ghana and uh, and why why am I Indian in Ghana, even though we're from Pakistan, and gave me the language of uh, colonialism and decoloniality and all of those things to, to really place myself in, to, to extricate myself from the sciences in a way that was really be- beneficial to me. So like all concepts, what performance 
means is culturally contingent. I think both in the sense of what it is, but also what makes a good performance. In the U.S., you might assume it's something that happens in front of a paying audience, for example, or on camera, like at a Super Bowl uh, halftime show or Saturday Night Live, or perhaps Mardi Gras. Like it's on say on stage of sorts, and it's fleeting. It's there, and then it's gone. How would you say have sociologists and other complicated those kinds of ideas over the decades? So. You mentioned Goffman, but but I think someone like Goffman who leads us to think about performance as everyday life, um, performance as something that we are doing, uh, that we're making choices about how we bring ourselves into the world, and therefore, you know that that opening quote, "All the world's a stage." I mean, we we really are thinking about mm-hmm. what we put on. Um, and when we don't think about what we put on, it's because we have a certain kind of privilege to not actually raise those questions. So I think it's often, and, and this is where sociology's investment in questions of power and structure are, are really valuable, is those who don't have to think so hard about how they perform have a have a closer relationship to, or a, uh, a greater access to power because they're already performing in the way that is most normative. And so, so someone like Goffman is really helpful in thinking about um, what is when we're putting things on stage or are working behind the scenes and don't feel that pre- pressure to conform and perform. Um, I think Foucault also helps us thinking think about how do we perform according to how we have to perform, <laughs> discipline, um, and, and what happens mm-hmm. if we don't? What happens when we don't bring our bodies into alignment with what is expected of us? And then uh, I think Bourdieu as well, who helps us think about performance and culture as transactional, <laughs> as uh, having a currency that <clears throat> even what we do with our bodies, how we speak, how we're accented, actually tells a story about who we are and how we're placed in relation to each other. And then, and then I think there there's some other mm-hmm. fields like you know psychoanalysis gives us the language of the mirror. Right, we watch ourselves. <laughs> And look at ourselves in order to think about who we are and do we look like the thing we think we are and do we think we look like the rest of society. That's a very detailed uh, answer to a kind of really broad question. And it's it's really like helping us like put a, a lot of important concepts mm-hmm. on the map. And some of the things you've mentioned, right? So the questions of the normative, the questions of bodies, pointing out the Bourdieu and so on. I was, I was kind of wondering, like... So, a word that might come up is like, for example, mm-hmm. performative, right? And I, I'm wondering, because your answer right there really gave us a sense of it's not only representing something, but the actions, the performance, does it does also something to the social, right? So I'm, I'm wondering if you could maybe clarify that a bit, like, for example, what Judith Butler meant with performative or, or like and how that differs maybe from, from performance, yeah, so so I think it's also important to say that the word performative has come into the public sphere as, you know, people talk about, oh, that's performative activism, i.e. it's fake activism, it is a performance and it is not real participation in a political sphere. Um, and I think that it's important to acknowledge that that is different from Butler or, or even a, a kind of deep performance studies reading of the term performative. Because what that term Mm -hmm. does when we call things Mm -hmm. performative is to say, because it is performance, it is fake. And so I I, I really appreciate the question. I think it's important to understand that performative refers to cultural expressions, ability to do things in the world, to impact the world. So, So the way that Judith Butler, who's a feminist philosopher, is thinking about it is to say that we are a cultural expression has the ability to land its intent because it has happened before. And it has happened over and over and over again that meaning has concretized around it and people get it and follow its lead. So the the most common one being when a married couple says, I do, you know, suddenly everybody starts treating them like a married couple. So this tiny performance I do actually has the power to shift your social status, how people treat you, et cetera. 
And Butler takes it into the world of, of gender to think about, okay, well, how do these things that we think are masculine concretize into being masculine or feminine, right? How does gender, through repetition, how does long hair come to refer to femininity? I think these, these social cultural debates about what is gender create this world of repetition in which suddenly we all seem to be in consensus. And then we start treating someone as the gender that we think they are because of, of repetition. Kareem, you know, we've been talking a lot about Butler and, and her thinking, and, and I think I'm presuming that most of this stuff we're talking about is referring to her landmark book, Gender Trouble, which came out in 1990. And I I know she herself has some new work coming out as well, but there's also been a lot of other, you know, people writing on this since then. So, you know, are there some recent ideas circulating that to bring in at this point? Yeah, so when we think about performative, we're talking about performance's ability to do its work because it's replicating. But there are folks like Deesa Inu Madison and Joshua Chambers-Letson, who come out of um, a performance studies training, who also talk about a performance's ability to do by interruption. You know, so instead of replicating, they actually say, what, what, if, we, what if we break the chain? What, what if something does something that we weren't expecting? How does that also do a kind of work? So uh, that that is drawing on a strain of thinking coming out of Roland Barthes and his idea of the punctum, that thing that pricks us, punctures us. We've also got the, the idea of failure that I mentioned, that not succeeding at reproducing the thing that performance was supposed to do creates um, other possibilities. And, and the, there's this interest there amongst thinkers on mess and the messiness of uh, not conforming as well. I mean, we can also, we could also maybe bring up your work here because I know that, you know, you, you, you think about and you write about performance and queer nightlife and global politics, showing how these things meet. I'm thinking of Ishtal, which is your ethnography of gay Indian nightlife that we described in the intro. I mean, what, what prompted that study? How did it begin and, and what were you looking to find out? You know, as, as you asked about my, my history of migration and family earlier, it was that early move to the U.S. In 2000, in 2000, but really in 2001 when I was just coming out as queer and started go, going to queer spaces in New York City. I spent a lot of time at the Gay Lesbian Center in on New York's West Village and was hanging out with all these fantastic people whose genders and sexual identities I didn't know existed until that time. And it was really beautiful. And at the same time, I was also invited to a queer South Asian party in New York City. And so I was going to 18 and over gay clubs with these friends. And, you know, it's like music and and pop and, and whatnot. But then I go to this queer Bollywood night. And suddenly I'm dancing to the songs that I used to dance to at my cultural shows in Ghana at, at our international school. Um, I am dancing to the songs that my parents were dancing to at the volleyballs and at their parties. And it was this disjuncture between like the, the queer nightlife I was seeing and experiencing with my friends and then this South Asian one that felt like too close to home in some sense. And again, a discomfort, right? A, a, a disruption in what I thought queer nightlife was supposed to be. Um, and there was a certain kind of comfort and discomfort in being in those spaces. That's one of the first places I saw South Asian drag as well. And and so that was a place of pleasure for me. And it was joyful and wonderful. And I used to travel from central New York and from Western Massachusetts. So I traveled uh, approximately three to five hours just to get to these parties and stay the night in New York and go back. So they really called to me is what I'm saying. And that led me to graduate school to start thinking, just to think about what are they? Uh, and, and, and I'll also say, because I wanted to be a part of them. I wanted a reason to keep going to them. You know, graduate school was not just uh, a question of curiosity, but it was also a way of making a place for myself in the world and, being with people who I felt at home with. 
in your ethnography, what you found or part of it was what you called Erstyle. Given that it's your book's title, can you elaborate on that? Maybe with like a few examples? Yeah. So that, that difference I was seeing between sort of quote unquote mainstream queer nightlife and then these queer Bollywood parties in the U.S. that had different flavor, right? That it was still nightlife and it was still very queer, but something else was happening and people were moving differently. And and I should also say that the 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 research started in in the U.S., but but also I I, I did work in India as well. But in both spaces, actually, I found that people were using the choreographies of Bollywood divas in really unexpected ways. And they were using choreographies that were f- from the 80s and 90s. You know, they were, so they were signaling both uh, a different place and a different time and a very specific cultural reference. So these two divas, one named Sri Devi, one named Madhuri Dixit, were known for their curious dancing and their over-emphatic dancing. And very specific gestures of theirs uh, show up in the nightclub even when they're not supposed to, right? And it's this question of, like, even when it's not supposed to, because the accent, like, our accents sometimes feel like the most normal part of ourselves, and sometimes they feel like that puncture that, oh, I don't fit in here, (laughs) you know? Um, no one else sounds like me, but I'm going to do it anyways because this is what my body does, right? So, so that's one one example. The other is the requirement to conform um, and to perform the the dominant accent. Uh, and I had an interlocutor who said who migrated from Bombay to San Francisco. And he said, I, I saw a rainbow flag somewhere. And so I got off the bus and I found out I was in the Castro. And I started come, going there every night and I was having a great time dancing, but no one talked to me. No one wanted to interact with me, but I was very happy to be there. And he said, it's only after going over and over again that I realized that I was supposed to do things a particular way. I had to, he says, I had to trim my nose hairs. I had to go to the gym. So he had to bring his body into alignment with what was the dominant in order to actually fit in. And then the something he goes on to say later is, he says, I, you know, I, I grew up in India, but I didn't grow up watching Bollywood movies. But because I was here, people in the U.S., people expected me to know Bollywood. So I started uh, watching Bollywood. And, and I'm doing the interview in his, in his house, and he gestures to this, like, rack of films that he watches now because the the expectation again that he performs his culture now asks him to learn something new about his own quote-unquote accent right he has to make make himself fit inside the way he's supposed to be seen and perceived and heard am i right that it was during your research in these nightlife spaces that you started performing as lahore vajistan yeah that is right can you tell us a bit about her yeah so Performing was a reluctant act then. I got to Chicago and like I said, this was an opportunity for me to to be in a city and to uh, be around other queer people of color. And I joined this very nascent activist organization called Tricone Chicago, which was an organization serving queer and trans South Asians. And we had no money. And we needed to throw a fundraiser. And I, you know, having gone to those parties in New York several times, suggested that we do one and that we have drag the same way that I saw there. And they're like, sure, you organize it. You find the performers. And I did. I, You know, a, a friend and I brought in a DJ all the way from Michigan. We found a bar that was willing to host us, but then we couldn't find a drag artist. So I did it and I went to thrift stores and to the cheapest makeup shops I could find. And I didn't know what I was doing, but I did something. People were like, well, what's she going to do next time? (laughs) And so I just kept performing. And there have been several stages in, in her development. But one of the things I'll say is that Lahore Vajasthan was also this way of making a place for myself in the world in a in a world where I was supposed to perform only one kind of choreography, right? I was always supposed to be the the boy in the Bollywood dance. 
and I was supposed to perform muscularity and strength, which I have none of, right? And so Lahore gave me the room to do feminine movement. The name also was this, this way of finding place for myself, questioning these routes of displacement and travel and migration and, and such. Lahore Rajasthan is also a place for me to exist where the subcontinent can't actually hold me. I mean, could you like explain a little bit more about this, about about the name Lahore Vajastan, kind of the concept behind it? And, you know, you've kind of mentioned it's a bit of a nod to geography, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So uh, Lahore, like the city in Pakistan, but has a W because she's here to work. <laughs> um, and... <laughs> Rajasthan, like Pakistan, Afghanistan, Hindustan, Tajikistan. But after the British and the Dutch and the French sort of cut it all up, she likes to, like a good post-colonial drag queen, sew it all back up together as a beautiful Rajasthan. <laughs> um, and, and specifically, the gesture to shape and to femininity um, in particular refers to the the tendency to draw the subcontinent as a woman's body. Um, but usually it is this uh, woman wearing a sari, and it's the kind of respectable Hindu figure that overtakes the entire subcontinent. And so really gesturing to sexuality there is is important because, you know, referencing all kinds of sexual figures, um, courtesans and such that, that are part of our history, but also the role of sexual violence in making a subcon in making the subcontinent, right? At the time of partition and through colonialism and through pastism as well, uh, I, I think thinking with sexuality is really important to all of my work and performance. Sexuality and sexual violence, yeah. If I remember correctly, Sari is one of the songs that you've recorded, right? There's a video on YouTube. Well, yeah. I guess in many ways, Lahore draws attention to national division as itself, like a kind of construct or artifice, a kind of performance. And of course, one that came with very real consequences and like violence in the case of the partition of uh, India. Um, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, what did researching as Lahore reveal about the nature of all research. Being in drag, did it shape kind of the vibe of your research? Or like, I guess it reminds us that interviews, for example, are, are always performances or being a researcher is always a kind of performance, but it kind of like feels like it might bring it to another level. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it insisted to me that I'm not an impartial figure in the world that I write about because people wanted to come to me. They want, well, they wanted to come to Lahore and tell them what they thought. And, and, and one of the things that's very specific about that is that the, the field sites I write about are heavily masculine, but because I brought femininity into the space, people wanted to talk to me about the kinds of femininity they practiced or had scripted out of their bodies. So, so this is where, the, again, the interview is not a neutral site. It's, in fact, a place where people are telling me the stories that they think I might want to hear because I am Lahore. Kareem, you mentioned kind of earlier in your answer that the spaces that you were in were quite masculine. And, you know, mm -hmm. we think about drag normally as, as men dressed as women, but drag also highlights the fact that masculinity is a performance in and of itself. And interestingly, so my partner performed as a drag king in the late 90s and throughout the 2000s in Sydney. And she started Drag King Night that really kicked off a, a pretty significant drag scene here. And, I mean, it's it's really striking how heteromasculinity is often assumed as though it's it's just it's just simply there it exists people aren't performing mm. it you know and and drag is an opportunity to confront that head on so there i teach a class called critical drag at tufts and we have a unit on masculinity and a unit on femininity and students were finding it difficult to talk about and describe heteromasculinity and i was like okay get up and give me your clearest, straight, white, cis boy pose. And the entire class knew exactly what to do. 
right? Um, they knew where to like cock their heads and pretend they had a baseball cap on and finger in the jeans pocket and these kinds of power, like casual power poses, right? But they often, they're often so hard to see, right? Because they make themselves so normative. And, and this is the thing is that heteromasculinity disappears itself and suggests it's not a performance, but in fact it is, right? It is a doing, but because there's so much of it, we forget, we think, we think that performance is that which is spectacular. But in fact, there's so much sort of normative performance happening that we forget that it actually is happening. And I think, you know, drag queens are often teaching us about excess, but there's the skill of the drag king to capture that really gross, sickening normativity that can that freaks us out when we see it on stage because we're like, how are you actually capturing and performing it because it seems so nebulous? And, and this is where I think of drag artists as deep ethnographers, that they study body and movement in order to represent it. And, and I think that drag artists are researching gender for us and putting it and, and allowing us to see it again in ways that we often don't see it in the everyday because we take it for granted. We, we will return to talk more about drag later, but after Chicago, you took your research to the southern city, Indian city of Bangalore. Can you tell us why? And is it significant that Bangalore is kind of a Silicon Valley of India? Yeah. So I, when I started doing research interviews in Chicago, one of the things I was hearing was that, well, we're so lucky we have queer nightlife here because it's not there in India. And I was like, I, I, that can't be true. Is it true? I don't know. I, you know, I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't have a deep relationship with the subcontinent. And, uh, my parents had retired in Bangalore, but I would go visit them and for a week and come back. And that's, that's what I knew of India. So I went uh, on a small research project there one summer and saw that there were all kinds of nightlife scenes there, from house parties to bars that weren't queer but allowed people to gather there, um, to parties that were called G parties, right? They couldn't be called gay parties explicitly, but... Um, allowed people to hang out and party and dance and sweat. The, the strange thing that happened as I started traveling to India was that I was running to my friends from Chicago and New York and Toronto there. And so it was that trip that made me realize there are these transnational labor circuits, actually, that are allowing people to enter different party spaces and to experience multiple kinds of nightlife in different spaces and to create transnational intimacies that allowed them also to see their families at the same time, that allowed them to practice religious pilgrimage at the same time as they were going to parties and, um, and doing work. As you've highlighted, the people at the heart of your study were typically migrants or transnational workers. And, you know, you say... Global Indian workers are so often represented as docile and desexualized. They're cogs in the global capitalist system, um, you know, between East and West. And your work challenges that thinking, applying a determination to acknowledge people's artistry, as you put it, which is so lovely, um, their identities beyond those that are expected by global capitalism. Can you can you tell us more about that? So one one of the things that started this project was a search for me, myself, right? And looking for uh, looking for community. And as I entered these spaces, a lot of people didn't weren't like me. You know, I come from a merchant family that has lived outside of the subcontinent for decades. A lot of the people I was meeting were uh, working in information technology industries, were project managers, were engineers. And I was making friends with these people who wouldn't normally be in my or orbit. And then I, as I saw that they were moving across these national spaces, I, I was like, oh, it's, work, it's this kind of work that allows you to move. So to make sense of 
who who these folks were around me, I started reading the literature on call centers and transnational work and um, IT industries, and they were all about work. Um, and they were all about the workplace and the way the workplace disciplines the body. And I was like, but they're here at the club with me too. Where's the where's where's the fun in the nightclub and the making out in these in these ethnographies? It it got me thinking about how we think about the the worker, right? That the worker is stuck. The worker is is caught up in something that is beyond their control. And these workers that I was with were having a great time. They were also caught up in visa issues, and they were caught up in exploitation in their jobs, and they were some of them are struggling to pay rent, etc. But how do we account for pleasure in in all of that? What do studies of globalization do with joy, pleasure, fun, mess? Um, and so that's that's where some of these questions emerge from to think about um, the global worker, but from a different place. And and it and it pushed me to think differently about the nightclub and and the the, the work that's happening there. That the connections that people are making on the dance floor help them survive these global economies simply by creating new new homes for them where they can be invited to someone's home and be fed or have a place to sleep or someone to fuck. I'm wondering if we can kind of tie all this to another idea that you've alluded to around refusal and performance. You shared a piece with us on this very theme of refusal by Lilian Mangisha and Lakshmi Padmanaban. Can you tell us about that and how it speaks to Ishtal? Like perhaps to how people resisted certain reductive ways of being seen? So I think that um, Mangesha and Padmanaban's work is a really important offering to performance studies that works in the tradition of uh, Saidiya Hartman, who's an important Black feminist thinker as well, who reminds us that performance isn't just about creativity and joy and pleasure, but it is about the compulsion to work. Um, and to work in service of racial capitalism. And so what does it mean to not perform? What does it mean to refuse the compulsion to work? And this is when we, you know, we characterize certain racial groups as lazy, right? And, but who is doing that characterization, I think, is, is and is that refusal to work, is laziness, is slowness, its own... It, it can look like non-performance, but actually, what if we look at it as a performance of refusal? Um, and so, so I think, as I think about global workers who prioritize fun over work when they're allowed to and when possible, I think this is one of those sites of refusal as well, right? That it acknowledges that you're supposed to perform a certain way in order to do the work that global capitalism wants of you and that sometimes you just don't do it. Hi, I'm Alice and I produce Uncommon Sense. And if you're enjoying hearing Kareem Kapchandani talking about performance here, why not head to our archive to hear Romit Chowdhury reflecting on masculinity in Kolkata. That's in our show on cities, or catch our episodes on bodies, intimacy, and more. You'll find all of that, as well as recommended reading and viewing, to share with students and friends over at the podcast page at thesociologicalreview.org. And as ever, remember to tap follow or subscribe in the app that you use to hear this to make sure you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening. Well, here's the part of the show where we turn to really focus on a particular trope or buzzword and take on some of our everyday assumptions around the idea, I guess. Kareem, we wanted to hone in a bit further on the notion of nightlife, of the night as the space for hedonism, nihilism, abandon or suspension. 
I've personally been looking forward to this bit of the chat because the queer club scene is so important to me personally as a place of kind of connection and community, but also catharsis and freedom. But I know, you know, a lot of my non-queer friends, they, they think you're supposed to grow out of of the nightlife scene, you know. It's, it's, it's a bit of a weird thing to still be going in your late 30s. Can you tell us a bit about ideas, about what the traditional ideas are around nightlife and clubbing, including in academia, and how people have complicated that, including you? Yeah. Um, so one is that nightlife is the place you're supposed to grow out of. But but I think this you're, you're really getting us to this question of like how time regulates our lives, right? That the night is is the bad time. The night is a time for rest um, and to, to do things with it and to do too much with it, you know, to go till four in the morning puts you outside of capitalist time as well. And so just night is always regulated as this time of, of non-work, but also the time that helps you go back to work. And so those people who play with it and do rambunctious things with it are seen as naughty and wild and <laughs> need to grow out of it and, and wake up and take it take care of their children, but those who don't, you know, choose not to, I think, are, are raising questions about how, how time works, period. But even inside of that, you know, queer folks are always talking about nightlife as their escape from heteronormativity, you know, and that it, it is the place of joy and losing yourself, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, you know, my work has arrived at this place of saying that this is where global economies are colliding. And there's so much happening in nightlife spaces from DJs to visuals to architecture to fashion to who's in there that actually tell very complicated stories of how they all arrived there and what economic routes brought them. And, and there's a uh, scholar named Dhiren Borissa in India, who's working on the relationship between caste and nightlife. Um, so the ways that um, caste and class in India, um, are ex- or a caste privilege and class privilege in India are exerted in nightlife spaces from um, how people dance, what music is played, what's on an invitation, um, and is approaching this as a geographer to say what what is happening in different parts of a city that in the same city, Nightlife can look very different depending on where you go and who's allowed and who's not. Mm. I think you also wanted to mention the late queer and performance studies scholar Jose Esteban Munoz and his work on utopia, yeah? Yeah, uh, Munoz's work has been foundational to creating what we think of as uh, nightlife studies. Munoz and, and his colleague um, Celeste Fraser Delgado edited a book called Every Night Life. Right, so we think of everyday life as a thing we study, right? And it's uh, performances every day. But what about the every night? And how there there are people who look to nightlife as their every day, right? It's actually people who depend on going out and raves and partying or house parties where they can finally relax in a way that their everyday lives don't give them permission to. And so his work has really been uh, important, and 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 his reframing of utopia not as the the place we arrive at, but at the thing that we're trying to get to and gesture towards, in all of these kinds of big or small convenings. I guess, like what you're saying, brings us to think about like how clubs are still places structured by rules. Yeah, it's it's kind of like you, you mentioned desire, like the things we do and so on. And I do remember that, for example, in Tokyo, mm-hmm. desire in some role play kind of spaces with, with cross-dressing uh, and drag was different than how it happened like in the gay Nichome kind of neighborhood. So for example, a lot of the men with whom I talked to kind of expressed their desire for other men in very heterosexual kind of, they, they said they conceived the the, the, the relationships as heterosexual because they were dressed as a woman or because their partner was dressed a, as a man. So these kind of rules that organize different spaces. Yeah. I mean, I think night, nightclubs are imagined as places where you go and you hook up and and it happens, but they don't always work that way. And again, they don't always work that way because people have uneven structures of desire you know they're they're um they're based on race and class and caste um 
and, and on material conditions and context. So I found out in Bangalore that people bring their dates to the party. And so they're not looking to hook up, but the party is the one place where they can make out because they can't at their homes. Um, because they're living with parents. There's uh, a scholar, an India-based scholar named Jayaprakash Mishra, who is writing about how married men, men married to women, are still able to live queer lives and go to these spaces and enter these spaces without living inside of all kinds of contradiction um, about their identities. And so I think there's a kind of clear-cut... The gay club is where, like, all kinds of hedonism happens. Actually, no, there's a lot of stuff happening outside that structures the desire that could be practiced there. And in the U.S., we see that play out in really racist forms of how people are rejected based on their body and skin color and hair and, and any of those things. And and, and the, these kinds of white ideals of, of the desirable body travel elsewhere as, as well. Yeah, right. So, I mean, I kind of want to talk about these spaces as spaces of, as work as well, which which I think Alexis mentioned. And you write um, in Ishtal that it highlights a different kind of labour and that the embodied work these men do to feel queer and sexy together, like it's this form of labour, right, to, to co-create something, which, you know, to- totally ties into this idea that even though nightlife gets stereotyped as a place to get wrecked or whatever, but it, it can also, people are building things in these spaces. People are working really hard to build something. So, you know, along with Kemi Adeyemi and Ramon Rivera Severa, you co-edited a book, Queer Nightlife, which came out a couple of years back. And its description notes how the mass shooting at a queer Latin night in Orlando, Florida in 2016 sparked, I'm quoting here, a public conversation about access to pleasure and selfhood within conditions of colonization, violence and negation. And, and, you know, the book poses the question, how do we go back to the club after Orlando? And I'm wondering whether you have an answer to that or can reflect on where the conversation stands today. So Orlando aside, even in, in, in my work, in Kemi's work, in Ramon's work, we all actually document how awful nightlife can be, right? How much pressure it takes to just bring your body into that space how much labor goes in you know you know we have actual nightlife workers you know who's who again don't get to follow the the daytime structure that is perhaps easiest to 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 work inside of but we keep going back i i've had the worst experiences in in nightclubs and i keep going back and i think this question of what are we looking for and how does how do nightclubs and their, their strange structures and possibilities invite us back in because they give us something that the rest of the world doesn't. And I think that that's, that's something that's driving this field of queer nightlife studies is the, the kinds of possibilities that we're eager to find. So, so I think that the conversation post-Orlando um, and Club Q and... and um, I mean, and, and those are not the first attacks on nightlife spaces either, right? They're they're reminding us that nightlife spaces are actual spaces of legitimate building um, that has uh, consequences beyond the space. But that the you know, to me, and and the argument I'm making in my book is that it, it also matters what happens in the space. It's not that it fine that it extends out and wonderful that it extends out, but it feels like we have to justify that nightlife is important because it impacts other spaces. Can we just trust that what happens there is in fact fantastic and important and great for what happens there? Um, but but I'll, I'll also add that, again, beyond the Orlando and US-centric conversation, we've tried really hard in that book to, to include um, stories about Lebanon and South Africa and India and Cuba, right? To really think about nightlife as something that's not just, and queer nightlife, not just structured around Stonewall, not just structured around the U.S.'s 
primary concerns around pleasure and work and and life, but but to think about other political structures, formations, and possibilities. Okay, so so normally at this stage we quickly grab our tips for something non-academic to go away and enjoy, but today we thought we'd take our time a little bit um, and talk about drag, which has ostensibly boomed uh, and entered the mainstream with shows like RuPaul's Drag Race, which for those of you who don't watch it, uh, is the US reality TV drag competition that uh, has just many, many, many versions worldwide. Kareem, our, our team was talking before the show, thinking about how thanks to social media kind of selves and precarity, we all seem so much more aware of how we need to constantly perform and switch modes in our daily lives to be to be kind of different selves um, and wear different hats, as the saying goes, and that, you know, maybe the fact that our behaviour is a performance is just unavoidably obvious now because of this. Do you, I mean, do you think that could be one reason for the seeming mainstreaming of drag on TV? I mean, I think... If you if if you watch drag race and if you watch drag artists, very few of them are putting on a character. Rather, by transforming themselves visually, you know they're not changing their voice; they're barely changing their 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 physical composure. But by changing the way we see them visually, something new happens. And this is this is gender performativity, right? This is how performativity work is works. Is like. When someone with long eyelashes is telling you a story, you you will experience it differently from when someone with uh, a beard and short eyelashes. It just it's it's wild how deeply these things are ingrained to create fantasy and and difference so simply. But I don't think you know this is the thing is that I don't think drag artists are doing anything fake when they're performing. I, I think that perhaps the the, the kind of self help obsession with authenticity right now is why we're getting words like performative coming to mean fake, right? And that performance it becomes bad. So I think I think drag artists actually have a lesson for us in in saying every version of ourselves is actually a good one, um, and we don't have to try so hard to be. Our, our, our correct self. Karim, you mentioned that you wanted to open up what drag means, right? And you, right there, you, you mentioned that like drag and performance are tools that are useful for everyone, basically, right? In a reflexive way. But of course, like in a certain sense also, uh, only some types of drag have been mainstreamed, yes? I mean, like, there's um, Jenny Livingston's landmark documentary, Paris is Burning, showing the mid-late 1980s ball culture uh, in New York and its minoritized communities, African-American, Latino, gay, transgender. But you're unlikely to catch it on, like, let's say, primetime TV, like Drag Queens of Color and Drag Kings 2 and many other kinds of performers are still far less visible. Like, I'm, I'm also thinking, for example, how... For some people, or maybe in some spaces, the question of like, can women drag or critically do femininity for like bio queens, for example? All which to say, like, I think we need to think about how, like who is allowed to perform and kind of like on what terms. Yeah, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, you're you're very right, and I think you just summarized my book, Decolonized Drag, really well. Thank you. But but that's, <laughs> but that's precisely, you know, if if colonialism has been this process of like privatization and um, and extraction, then to decolonize drag, I think we need to um, create more access and openness because people with different bodies will do drag differently, right? Um, disabled folks aren't able to do gender the way that we think gender is supposed to be done. Some disabled folks, right? And and so what, what does drag look like for them? Thinking about class and who can afford the kinds of accoutrements of packers and breastplates and rhinestones and all of that. How do we do drag simply through posture and gesture and not through dress and makeup? You know, so 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 the, the, I mean, I really am invested in more things being called drag if they want to be, because 
drag has this global stage and certain people are not being given access to the benefits that come with uh are not being invited to the stage in the same way so yeah i'm 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 all i'm i'm there with you i think there's also you know outside of the outside of a sort of euro western context there are all these kinds of trans broadly defined performance that are not be counted as drag but are working in very similar registers that laugh at patriarchy in all of these ways and and that's what drag should be doing you know um and there are forms of performance that are doing that already and i think we don't validate them as being inside of the same ecology as drag because i think this this magnificent but also a uh, monopolistic show repulse drag race has delimited the terms of what we think drag is for a long time so you do have this new book coming out decolonize drag and i understand that as you sort of just then mentioned maybe it's it's in response to rupaul and and the global phenomenon that it that it is and how it is also quite limiting is there anything more that you that you want to share with us about the book that we haven't spoken about already well one I, you know i think rupaul i in the book rupaul is one chapter but it's she's emblematic of i think our our tendency to work with gender on its most western colonial terms right and to binarize gender formations and work within uh, a formation that understands sex and gender to be the same right or to be constitutive of each other and so so the book first works to tease apart the relationship between colonialism gender and performance to then say okay how does rupaul restage some of those but how do actually some of the performers on her show dismantle that as well and then it goes on to think about how performers are actually performing colonial critiques beyond the show as well and you know there there are people who are critiquing the internment of japanese um, uh, americans uh, during world war 2 there are folks who are performing as harriet tubman who are critiquing the police in india through uh, drag king aesthetics I, I have all of these examples in there but one of the things i I arrive at, and, and it sort of happened in Ishtal and it just hits me in the face here, is that there's room for decolonial thought in the nightclub, right? Then this, the nightclub as a place of politics, you know, if I say it's caught up in, in global politics, so why can't it also be a, a radical and dissenting global politic as well? Um, and, and seeing, you know, seeing and accounting for all these artists making performance about settler colonialism and uh, racial violence and people still cheering and feeling and crying together. Um, I think that the nightclub is actually an incredible space for, and, and drag is an incredible space to, to practice radical politics. Karim, it's been so fascinating learning from you. And I think I'm going to leave this conversation a little bit more aware of uh, how I perform in my own life, um, but also with some drive to add in a bit of play and artistry as well. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And that is it for today. You can find our show notes on the episode page in whatever app you're using to hear this or over on the podcasts page at thesociologicalreview.org. And be sure to tap follow or subscribe because next month we're talking about success. And after that, hmm, anxiety. Thanks for joining us. Bye. Bye.